This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of November 12, 2013, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 106 of Defender Radio. This week we've got some great interviews lined up with Toronto City Councillor Glenda Bearmaker, Dr. Aisha Akhtar, and our good friend Dr. Mark Beckoff. But before we get started, there's an important story emerging in British Columbia that we wanted to share. Defender Radio News A study out of UBC and SFU is pointing to scientific uncertainty as a sign that British Columbia's grizzly bears may be headed down a grave path. According to the authors, the study collected 10 years of data relating to the population estimates of grizzlies, as well as those killed in trophy hunts. In an interview with the CBC, SFU biologist Kyle Artell noted that the BC government's population estimates are based on a count representing only 15% of the actual territory inhabited by bears the remainder being compiled by computer models. In a way, it's a bit like a game of Russian roulette, Artel said. The data just don't let us have a precise picture on how big that threat is. But it is considerable risk based on that uncertainty. APFA is joining a chorus of other concerned residents, scientists, and non-profits calling for an end to trophy hunting of grizzlies before it becomes too late. Find out more at furbeardefenders.com. Defender Radio News. 2013 was a hard year for coyotes in Toronto. Two highly publicized incidents, the wild chase and subsequent shooting of a coyote by police, and another coyote exploring backyards in the beach area, led to a great deal of concern and media sensationalism throughout the city. APFO was pleased to join with partner organization Coyote Watch Canada and facilitated the Beach Coyote Coalition which hosted numerous community meetings and provided resources to residents and the City of Toronto. Councillor Glenda Bearmaker led Council toward updating existing policies for coyotes and ensuring a safe future for them in the city. Glenn, can you walk us through why there was a need to re-examine the policies surrounding coyotes in Toronto? Well, I have to say, stepping back, at one level, there wasn't a need to improve the policies because we actually had good policies in place. It's just that everybody had forgotten about them because they were put in place about a decade ago. So when the police officer, uh, who I do not fault, and and I'm sure he thought he was doing the right thing by chasing that coyote into a park and shooting it, obviously did the wrong thing. Anyone with any experience uh, in animal welfare or animal control would have said the most dangerous thing that happened that night in Toronto was a police officer discharging his firearm. Coyote is really not going to hurt anybody. Uh, it's uh, you know it's you have a probably have a higher chance of being hit by lightning than being bitten by a coyote in the city of Toronto. But that officer, and I don't again I, at one level I don't blame him, thought, oh my gosh, it's a wild, vicious animal that's going to steal our babies. This, this vicious animal will uh, uh, attack somebody and, and try to carry them off. And, and again, and that's somebody obviously who knows nothing about coyotes. So we, we've had good policies in place for a decade. They've sat on a shelf. They got dusty. We haven't really had any um, um, 
concerns about coyotes because they've been living in harmony with us. But because of a problem that did develop uh, down in the beach, and it became a problem of perception. And there was a problem of reality. In the end, I think somebody was was uh, providing food for a coyote, and coyotes are intelligent creatures. And as soon as humans start feeding them, they go, oh, humans are good. Why should I be afraid of those children at the schoolyard? Maybe one of them will give me some KFC. So that's that's the problem that was created. It wasn't the coyotes have been here for since the city was built uh, 150 years ago. There have been coyotes living in this city, and they're in every part of the city, virtually in every park, in every cemetery, in every hydro field, uh, and everything's okay because they, uh, you know, they're shy. They get, come out at night. They don't really bother us. We see more raccoons and skunks than coyotes, but because the coyotes are faster and smarter. Yeah, but when, you know, when somebody has um, uh, started feeding this animal, that's really a death sentence for that animal. And that's the unfortunate part of it. If if we had followed our existing guidelines, this issue wouldn't have happened because that person wouldn't have for probably, you know, probably had thought they were doing a good thing by feeding this cute coyote. So I would say there wasn't really a need to improve our policies there was a, re a really need for us to um, enforce the existing policies. And you'll notice, I don't know if you got the staff report and the policies that we passed, but they were really a reinforcement of, of the policies that we had. But with a new emphasis with our staff to actually go out and, and talk to police officers and some of the emergency responders to say, don't take your gun out. When you see a coyote, wave your arms and yell at it, and it'll run away. There's no need to have a gun out. In fact, waving your arms is more effective than taking out a gun. Coyotes understand waving arms in a loud voice. Coyotes don't understand a subtle movement of your hand to your pocket and then, you know, a hand in front of you. What kind of support did you receive when these updates were presented in a report for council? I would say 99 to 100% support I guess I can't say 100% because there might have been one or two individuals still concerned uh, who didn't want to actually read the report or, or see how beautiful coyotes were or how admirable they are as a species. Uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a family, you want your family to be like coyotes. <laughs> They're very honorable animals. Um, so uh, I would say overwhelming support. And the, the, in fact, what I... Uh, my perspective at the meeting is there were no, there, nobody showed up to the meeting to yell and scream at us that we were allowing savages to run loose or that we were threatened, we were endangering their children or their pets. Nobody, nobody spoke in opposition to it. And even the folks who, who supported the policy didn't come out and speak uh, saying that we were doing the wrong thing because they'd read the report, they'd met with our staff, they'd met with counselors like myself and said, wow, this is really good. So it was a very successful exercise at one level in, in uh, making good public policy. Because if, if we hadn't convinced the public that we were doing the right thing, I can guarantee you that we would have had a dozen or two dozen very emotional people telling us that we we're you know, evil or doing the wrong thing or threatening the safety of their family. And, and I, I'm sure out of the 2.7 million people living in Toronto, there may be four or five people who in their hearts do believe that coyotes are a danger but not most of us.
not the other 2.6998 million people. Was the support of organizations like APFA and Coyote Watch Canada important? People were very happy with the policy. And I think, and again, it's, it's a credit to the general community. I, I have to say the, the animal welfare community and just people who you know understand uh, nature and animals that um, we, it was a very successful exercise because there was first a little bit of, I have to say, hysteria. Um, there were a couple of very lively community meetings. But after the first shock and let's all get torches and chase the animal out of town, once people saw, and I mean, this was where the volunteers played a really effective role, once they showed up with PowerPoint, you know, they were armed not with guns <laughs> or torches, they were armed with PowerPoint presentations showing how magnificent and beautiful these animals are and how their families operate and, and that the fact that they live here and haven't been a threat to us, that education really uh, served our city well because we didn't have lunatics running around saying, let's set out poison traps or leg hole traps that will only hurt and injure children and people's pets, probably not the coyotes. You know, there, there is really only one solution, and that is education and living in harmony with the coyotes, like we more or less live in harmony with squirrels and raccoons and skunks. What's next for the City of Toronto in living with coyotes? Well, in terms of coyotes, I, I do think... Um, it, it will be it, it will be up to the city and volunteer groups to, again. And this I love this as as a again I've been on council ten years. I, I'm an I'm an animal welfare advocate, if you will. I, I love the environment and I love animals, cats, dogs, coyotes, budgies, you name it. Um, I I think it's been very successful in terms of protecting wildlife and respecting wildlife. I think the city has to stay on top of it. We can't just visit the police department once and talk to three officers. We actually have to get there's about five, I think if my math, if my memory is correct, there's, there are, I think there's 5,000 police officers in the city of Toronto. So our animal control department will have to set up annual or semi-annual meetings with different officers just to let them know what's going on, in addition to all the other training that they do, um, and, and to keep it at the forefront. But, you, you know, in 10 years, will people forget? Probably, because when all is well, you you do it slips to the back of your mind it's you forget that you shouldn't be feeding coyotes um or that if you see a coyote eating at your bird feeder that you should take your bird feeder in for a little while till the coyote goes away because there isn't a food source for him um but so one we have to be vigilant in terms of coyotes in terms of wildlife i think uh, again i have to say in my 10 years i've seen the evolution of acceptance um this man versus nature good versus evil paradigm or, or ideas or, or beliefs that people have had, I think they're learning that coyotes and even wolves and, and bears and uh, skunks are not evil creatures. They're just creatures. That was Councillor Glenn the Bearmaker from the City of Toronto. A copy of the report approved by Toronto City Council is available with this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. 
please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our furbearing friends. This is Defender Radio. We all know the future depends on how we treat non-human animals, but Dr. Aisha Akhtar has taken it a step further. Dr. Akhtar, a preventative medicine and neurology specialist, works for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats at the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. She has authored a book, Animals and Public Health, Why Treating Animals Better is Critical to Human Welfare, which combines her medical background with a personal love of animals. Dr. Akhtar joins Defender Radio to discuss her book and why public health is at risk if we continue to treat non-human animals as we do. Her views and opinions do not represent those of the FDA or the United States government. Dr. Akhtar, how did you combine your medical background with your interest in how animals are treated? I actually started, before I even went to medical school, I started to learn um, about the plight of animals and um, I was very interested in bioethics even when I was in high school. And through bioethics, I learned about our relationship with other animals and what that meant for us. And um, it really led me onto the path to uh, change my diet to one that is now completely vegan and to change how I think about our relationship with animals. And my training throughout my uh, medical education, through medical school, my residencies, and beyond um, has only confirmed that um, really we need to treat animals better, not just for their sake, but for our sake as well. Our health is very much impacted by how animals are treated, not just as individuals, but as, as a group. Um, how we treat animals as a society has a tremendous impact on some of our most significant public health threats that we face today. I've read that factory farms where animals are raised and slaughtered for consumption are breeding grounds for infectious diseases. That's exactly right. Um, you know, now we, there are over almost 70 billion animals, land animals, that are raised for food and killed each year throughout the world. Um, and just to get a perspective, there are about 7 billion human beings. So we have, um, at any one given time, there are almost 10 land animals being raised and killed for food for every one human being. So that's a lot of animals. In the U.S. alone, we kill 1 million land animals every hour for food. That's just in one hour. 
So in order to raise that many animals um, to meet that high demand, uh, farms are now raising animals in factory farms where they're, they're crammed into tighter and tighter spaces. And they're so jammed up together that you know, chickens, for example, barely have room to uh, do any of their normal behaviors. Um, Egg-laying hens, for example, are in a cage the size of a newspaper. Um, with five or six other hens, they can't turn around. They can't even stretch their wings. And um, pigs are in similar situations. Other birds are in the same situation in factory farms. And these farms are not only so bad for their mental health and for their physical health, it, it, they are breeding grounds for infectious diseases. These animals are so packed together in such filthy conditions. They are literally lying in their own waste. They are constantly breathing in aerosolized fecal matter, ammonia, pathogens that are in the air it greatly affects their health and their immune system. And what this means is that these animals are constantly sick. So because they're constantly sick, their immune systems are down and they are very prone to catching infectious diseases. So we've got a two-pronged situation here. One is that these animals are so stressed and living in such miserable conditions that their immune systems are down and they're very prone to catching infectious diseases. And the second prong here is that because they are so densely packed together, it's so easy for infectious disease to be passed on from one animal to another. Uh, a new pathogen can spread like wildfire in a factory farm situation. And what that means is that each time a pathogen spreads from one animal to another, it also has the ability to evolve and mutate into a form that makes it even more deadly and um, more deadly for human beings. This has the potential to cause us pandemics, especially when we're talking about the influenza virus, which can very much emerge and spread among factory farmed animals. When we talk about public health issues related to animals, it is primarily animals bred for consumption. So how do wild animals play into this? So that's a good question. Well, wild animals very much play an integral part in um, some of our most urgent public health threats we face today. Um, Three-fourths of emerging and what's called re-emerging infectious diseases come from other animals. So most of our infectious diseases come from other animals. And this is where the wildlife trade comes in. The wildlife trade involves shipping and transporting and killing millions of animals each year across the globe. These animals may be caught from the wild or they're bred in captivity and they're shipped around the globe for uses as exotic pets. They are shipped to stock zoos, circuses, and other entertainment venues. They are shipped to stock biomedical research labs and they are used for exotic leather and fur products and medicinal objects. And it's a very, very massive trade. In fact, um, the illegal part, the underground part of the wildlife trade is very close to um, um, smuggling of drugs and, um, uh, you know, jewels, for example. In illegal under, the underground wildlife trade is a very profitable industry. 
um, very close to the smuggling of drugs. And as we ship these animals and as we go deeper and deeper into the forest to capture these animals, we're um, exposing ourselves to newer, novel pathogens that we may never have encountered before. And the wildlife trade through the bushmeat trade, for example, in which um, um, animals are caught in traditionally the African bush, but it's increasingly throughout the world in any um, natural habitat where animals are caught for food, um, that has been um, is the cause behind the emergence of the Ebola virus and HIV/AIDS, to name a few. The wildlife trade is also um, the cause behind the emergence of the SARS coronavirus. So uh, SARS is a um, severe acute respiratory syndrome and it emerged in the Guangdong province of China um, through the wildlife trade. And it was initially thought that um, SARS was um, emerging from contact with civet animals, which are sort of cat-like animals, which are um, caught from the wild and exploited and traded throughout the world for their musk-producing glands. And because of that, China um, executed thousands of these animals by incredibly cruel methods, such as drowning them in disinfectants. It was later learned that the original source of the SARS virus are likely um, a type of large fruit bat. Um, but whatever the original source ends up being, whether it is these fruit bats or some other animal that we have yet to identify, the, the true blame lies in the wildlife trade. The fruit bats were also caught for the wildlife trade, and it's believed that at some point um, in, the, in the trade um, process, fruit bats got into contact with susceptible animals like civet cats, whom were um, already um, suffering from depressed immune systems because of the conditions in the wildlife trade. And so we're very able, easily able to catch the SARS virus and then transfer it ultimately onto human beings. So the wildlife trade is a very, very direct cause of the emergence and spread of new pathogens, dangerous pathogens, pathogens like HIV, Ebola, and SARS. I was in Nova Scotia earlier this year talking with people about mink farms, and one concern that was raised was Aleutian disease, a virus that at times can wipe out the entire population of a farm. But my brief reading shows that we know very little about this virus, except it doesn't directly impact humans. Should we be at all worried? Since we don't know what this virus is, it makes it even more problematic, and we don't know what it is capable of doing. It, um, even if it doesn't cause problems ultimately for human beings, it may cause problems for the local wildlife population and could have a tremendous impact on the local ecosystem, which could have then um, impact on human infectious diseases um, ultimately. It's, so the, it's not just capturing animals in the wild that's problematic. It's also breeding animals um, for the wildlife trade. Um, as a matter of fact, there have been many studies that have looked at um, breeding farms of turtles and frogs, and they've looked at their, their rates of salmonella among these animals in these breeding farms compared to the rates of salmonella 
uh, among these animals in the wild. And they find that um, salmonella rates are much higher among these animals in the breeding farms. And that makes sense given what we know about these breeding farms. They are like factory farms for farmed animals. Um, these breeding farms are, are, miser are miserable. Um, they, they have miserable conditions for the animals involved. Uh, these animals, again, are, are packed into dense environments. They're very stressful and um, their immune systems are suppressed again, and so they're more likely to not only catch these infectious diseases, but shed them and manifest them outwardly. And so that makes humans more likely um, able to catch these infectious diseases from handling these animals. So animals in captivity may have even higher rates of a number of dangerous infectious diseases than animals free living in the wild. In a document handed out to municipalities from the BC Trappers Association and the FIC, it is stated that trapping wildlife is a reliable manner in which to protect public health from infectious disease. In your research and work, have you ever come across evidence that would support this? No, I have not. That, that's actually astounding that someone could even have the gall to, to make that claim about trapping. There, there's no evidence whatsoever that trapping is an effective measure to contain um, pathogens, and trapping is a very uh, indiscriminate way of catching animals. I, I don't know how you can possibly target a specific animal through trapping. Any, any animal can, can walk into a trap. And so um, it's, it's a very ineffective, inefficient, and indiscriminate way of, of trying to catch animals and certainly would not work in containing pathogens. The way to contain pathogens is ultimately by redefining uh, how we treat animals in, in, for the wildlife trade and those animals that are living in the wild. We need to give them room to live as they normally would and not encroach on, upon their habitat as we are increasingly doing. And by increasingly encroaching upon um, the wildlife, we are exposing ourselves to more and more of the infectious diseases that we would never have encountered otherwise. That needs to change for us to really pre prevent the emergence of new infectious diseases. What happens if we don't change the way we treat animals in our homes, in our communities, and in our society? There are a lot of things that's going to happen. One is that we're going to continue to see a rise in our chronic diseases such as heart disease, stroke, and cancers, and diabetes that are largely linked to our consumption of animal products. Second, we're going to continue to see an increase in obesity throughout the world. Again, that is largely linked to our consumption of animal products. Animal products are not the only cause, but it is a significant contributing factor. As a matter of fact, obesity has now passed undernutrition as a major cause for concern in the underdeveloped world. The third thing is that we're going to increasingly see a rise in new infectious diseases. We're already seeing a rapid increase in um, uh, new infectious diseases uh, over the past 10 years, and I suspect that that increase is going to, to um, continue, if not grow, over the next 10 years. And um, we're putting ourselves at serious a threat for a new pandemic. In 1918, there was the, um, the Spanish influenza, 
or the 1918 influenza pandemic. It was called the Spanish influenza because it was first detected in Spain. But it killed more than all the world wars of the 20th century combined. It was a very dangerous influenza virus. Now, we've been lucky so far that we have not seen a similar virus emerge, but it is only a matter of time, as long as we continue to treat animals the way we do and confine them by the billions in these factory farms, go out into the wild, capture them, or breed them in captivity, and trade them around the globe, we are really putting ourselves at risk for another pandemic that is just as serious and dangerous, if not more, than the 1918 influenza pandemic. To learn more about Dr. Aisha Akhtar, her book, or how human welfare is at risk if we continue to ignore non-human animal welfare, visit www.aishaakhtar.com. Links are also available on this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. The average North American consumes five times more than a Mexican, ten times more than a Chinese person, and thirty times more than a person from India. We are the most voracious consumers in the world, a world that could die because of the way we North Americans live. Give it a rest. November 26 is Buy Nothing Day. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. This is Defender Radio. The skies may still be blue, but the winds are blowing from the north, and that means the season of fur trim is upon us. Defender Radio News. Advocacy groups and independent activists across the country are beginning their leafleting outside of stores who sell fur trim products and at key locations. APFA is pleased to help. We have numerous brochures, postcards, and signs available to assist these demonstrations. To find out how APFA can help your education-based initiative, visit us at www.FurBearerDefenders.com. Defender Radio News Dr. Mark Beckoff is a world-renowned cognitive ethologist who has penned several books on the subject of animal emotions, edited multiple encyclopedias, and published over 500 essays on his Psychology Today blog, Animal Emotions. Most recently, Dr. Beckoff published a new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. A strong theme throughout the book is a call for a stronger stance on the theory of compassionate conservation. Dr. Beckoff joins us now to talk about his new book. Hi, Mark. 
After successfully publishing so many essays on your Psychology Today blog, why did you decide to put them together into a book? Well, I've written about 500 essays, and they've been very popular, actually. Um, they've gotten well over a million hits. And so, actually, a few publishers had approached me about doing a book based on the essays. And then my favorite, my favorite publisher, New World Library, who did The Emotional Lives of Animals and the Animal Manifesto, asked if I would like to do it, and I just decided that I'd had such wonderful experience working with them that I'd let them do it. So um, that's pretty much why. I mean, I love doing the essays. Um, they keep me abreast of what's happening. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's all she wrote. I mean, it was a lot of work. People think, oh, yeah, well, we just slammed essays, you know, between two covers. But we updated them. We edited it out if there were any kind of, you know, errors um, so we're really happy with it, and you know we wanted to organize them sort of topically since the Psychology Today ones just come out whenever I write them. In many ways, you start at the beginning of much of this. Each chapter has a bit of an introduction about the idea. How important is it for people to have a basic understanding of the subject prior to reading about it? Well, what we felt, I mean, I'm glad you asked. I, I wrote a, long, a longer um, general introduction, and, you know, the general feeling was that I really wanted to, we really needed to reintroduce the essays for people who don't read them or haven't read them. Um, and then we decided we would tell, you know, readers what was in each section and why. And there's some logical flow to it. I mean, some very general essays in the beginning and then, you know, the last sections ending off about conservation and really where my passion is compassionate conservation. So, so my suggestion is, a, a num there's a number of things. I've actually had a bunch of emails. Some people have just jumped in and read the essays, you know, randomly, and others have, you know, just read sections randomly. So I think I think the, the short general introductions to each section are important. I wouldn't say they're essential, but I think they're important for sort of framing what follows. I've long been a fan of your writings, as have many of our audience. So the idea of your essays in a book form is an exciting new way for us to follow your work. But in this format, it's also a lot more accessible to the general public, who may not know about cognitive ethology or your other areas of focus. Was that the intent? Yeah, I mean, I've had emails from, I mean, I've had a lot of emails from people who I don't know, and I've had a lot of emails from people who didn't know about, you know, the Psychology Today essays. And then I've really had had a really nice email yesterday from somebody who worked on one of the early wild earth projects. Um, he'd never thought about, you know, compassionate conservation and the notion of rewilding our hearts, which is the topic of a book I'm literally finishing this week. And so the reaction has really been favorable. And I think for a lot of people, they're happy to see, you know, what we considered to be the key essays compiled between two covers. And I just have to say that, you know, it sounds maybe like I'm bragging, but it's a beautifully produced book and you can get it for, you know, anywhere between 10 and $15 and which is well affordable. So that was the other goal of um, my publishers and me myself was to just put something out there that was accessible, not only in terms of being able to be read by a wide audience, 
but people could buy because, you know, most people can pop 10, 15 bucks for a book, but they're not going to pay $75 or $100 for a book. A central theme in the book is compassionate conservation. Can you tell me a bit more about what compassionate conservation is and why you included it in the book? Right. Um, well, compassionate conservation had its birth a couple of years ago. Um, there was a meeting at Oxford University in England that was organized by the Born Free Foundation. And a couple of us have been writing about it for years, stressing the value of the life of individual animals. And so people interested in animal protection, you know, it could be welfareist rights. I mean, you know, rightists were really, really um, concerned that since we're losing habitat and we're losing species, there was a real emphasis on saving populations, species, and ecosystems. And some people were willing to trade off the life of individual animals for the good of their species, or, or in some cases, you know, the good of other species. So compassionate conservation, you know, in a nutshell, is kind of formalizing uh, the approach that individual animals count. And so that if you're going to try to save wolves, it's not okay a priori to just say, well, some wolves will, will die for the good of other wolves. So that's really where it comes in. The beginning foundation would be the life of every individual counts and every decision that's made has to respect that. It's, and in all honesty, it's really caught on because the other, I should say the other side of um, compassionate conservation is that humans count. You know, a lot of people get really into the animal or the land issues, and so compassionate conservation takes into account cultural differences and basically all stakeholders, including humans, and recognizes that in our very complicated and frustrating and challenging world, there may be trade-offs. I regularly hear from people talking about how conservation began with hunters and how hunters and trappers remain the great conservationists. But the compassionate conservation theory kind of goes against that. How do we approach that subject with those who believe that conservation requires lethal control? Well, that's, you know, the way we just basically show it is that lethal control, killing other animals, culling them, I mean, you know, however you want to cash it, just doesn't work. I mean, it, it just hasn't worked. So people will, you know, sometimes point to short-term or narrow successes, but in the long run, killing animals hasn't worked. And the other thing, of course, is, you know, trying to focus in on individual animals and getting people to realize that they're sentient beings and that we're harming them. What happens if we don't change the way we look at conservation? I think if we, <laughs> I honestly think if we don't change, then we're not going to get out of the predicaments that we're in that will have the short-term little successes and will, or maybe even long-term narrow successes, but we'll continually have these problems. I just, once again, think that when we start focusing in on the value of an individual's life, the discussion really changes. And it has changed. You know, should we be marking animals and trapping them and banding them and putting radio collars on them? Do we know whether, um, you know, we're changing their behavior? That was Dr. Mark Beckoff joining us to talk about his new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. To find out more about Mark or how to get his book, check out this week's Defender Radio blog. 
that's the show for this week. On behalf of APFA and Defender Radio, with the support of Gates Wildlife Control, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.